You're very welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you will enjoy this small extract from one of my favourite chats with Blind Boy. It's a small section from the huge interview that I did with him, more than an hour in length, and you can hear the whole thing. If you want deep dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores, along with access to our other series, Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, our true crime series, Irishman Behind Bars, and tons of bonus and exclusive content, come with me. Premium Irishman Abroad is available at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. It'll take you a minute to sign up. And for less than a fiver, you'll gain access to everything. That's hundreds of hours of stuff. And you can walk around with a spring in your step of someone who knows that they helped this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. And Jigsaw are a very special youth mental health charity that works to provide young people in our with the mental health skills they'll need to survive this life. Since the pandemic, this charity has seen a 400% jump in demand for those services, one-to-one group services. They're needed. We're approaching a mental health emergency in Ireland. And if you're in need and if someone in your life needs help, jigsaw.ie is the place to go. It'll take you two minutes, pop over there. Maybe they can help you. Maybe they can help the young people around you. Or maybe through a small donation each month, you can help them. That's Jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately... I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Jonathan Rigo! Blind Boy Boat Club, thanks for doing the Irishman abroad. Uh, I think we met across the summer and at different points you were questioning whether you would go into the podcast world. You have done that and your podcast has been top of the charts ever since. Um, what took you so long and how hard and how much fun are you finding it? Yeah, like people have been asking me to do a podcast for a very long time. It's the Blind by podcast because I couldn't think of a more original name. It's unbelievable fun it's unbelievable crack the freedom that I have to do whatever I want is is absolutely phenomenal you know what, what, there's something about podcasting where the listener the audience are very I don't want to say forgiving no I think I think it is forgiving it's it's my theory about podcasting uh, it's it's a phrase that I use called the podcast hug I believe that our lives are so saturated with media uh, like on Facebook, on Twitter, that the only things that allow us any calm space within that online world are photographs of cats and listening to podcasts. And I do believe a pod- listening to a podcast is, is a form of a calming meditation. 
And yeah, I'd agree. I think that we're scrolling so much uh, that everything has to be five seconds, 30 seconds long, that we've kind of got a society of two ends of the spectrum where it's either five seconds long, a UFC knockout, or it's a box set that's hours and hours and hours yeah. long that you immerse yourself in completely. And the cultural analyst in me sees uh, is quite interested in the fact that what you what you described there is is echoed in the in our society. If you look at how the the rich and the poor, the middle is disappearing, and it's either the very rich or the very poor, and this seems to be happening. Now I know that sounds insane, but that's what that's what cultural analysis is. You see the the connections, but in, in kind of cultural artifacts like that, you know. Sure, the similarity in things that are different and the differences yeah. between things that are similar. That's what Bill Hicks described stand-up as being. I think that with the podcasts that you've described enjoying, such as Bill Burr and Joe Rogan, you've said that you like yeah. to be challenged in a podcast. So while in the po- hug is somebody to be giving you a nuggie at the same time. or Very much <laughs> so. Yeah, um, I, like, I, I, listen to, I love listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and... Sometimes he'll have guests on that I don't agree with politically or, you know, Bill Burr will sometimes say things that I don't agree with. But I think when it's within the podcast space, we can listen to conflicting opinions, but don't mm. feel angry or reactionary. If somebody says something on uh, in, in a Facebook status or a Twitter, a Twitter um, status that I disagree with, my instant reaction is to get angry and slam on the keyboard. But when I hear an opinion I disagree with on a podcast, I'm much more calm and accepting of it. I'm curious about it. Do you Mm. know? I do completely. And I mean, there's been, it's been a week, a month, probably a year of conflicting views that have been shouted into wells and given in the shortest possible way. And probably the best response we've had to a podcast here this year has been the repeal the eighth one because it was just that. It was calm voices explaining very complicated things. I feel like the change that's come about in your life and certainly in the arc of the rubber bandits was that when you guys went mainstream, inverted commas, you were kind of being sucked into a vortex of can you make that joke or that idea simpler and simpler and simpler until eventually, yes. as you described it, you essentially became Jedward with curses. Yeah, yeah. We had a little, a, a, a lick of mainstream success after Horse Outside and I I, inten- I really, really, really didn't enjoy it. It was not pleasurable whatsoever. It, it, it's, Talk to us I, about I, that because it, most people will never know what you're describing or why you wouldn't enjoy it because it seems to be what we're all being told we should aspire to. For me, my, my definition is, is of success is to, to just to be able to earn a living from doing something you love, okay? If mm-hmm. I can do that, then I can I would consider myself to be successful. When Horse Outside happened, now, I, I don't have a problem with Horse Outside the song. I, I love it. But it reached an incredibly mainstream audience and it reached an audience, a rubbernecking audience, a novelty audience, an audience that have no interest in our other work, that would be no would not be interested in what we're doing, who misinterpreted what we were doing. And I'd been gigging three years before Horse Outside and we had lovely gigs of actual fans who enjoyed all our work and were nice, engaged people who wanted to be at the gig. As soon as Horse Outside happened, we got booked for all these gigs. 
but the type of people who were coming up, turning to, up to the gigs, some of them were really horrible. You know, the horrible isn't fair. They were the type of people who don't go to gigs. They were getting too drunk. They were screaming at us. They were throwing things. They were spending the entire gig with their back to us. But they're talking, talking and roaring, and did not have any etiquette, and didn't enjoy the show really. To be honest, they just kind of. There's the rubber band, it's the lads with the song, we'll go to the show and then realise they hated everything else we did. So it was horrible doing these gigs, it wasn't enjoyable. And then what happens when Horse Outside got very big very quickly in Ireland and when your star shines that bright, you know, it burns out very quickly. So about six months after Horse Outside, we were universally hated by the majority of the country, which was quite unpleasant. And the original fans who'd come along for the other stuff, they disappeared. So I was left with a very large mainstream audience that I could not communicate with. I couldn't make music for them. I couldn't output for them. So we made a decision to try and lose fans, deliberately try and lose fans. So what we did was we released a song called Spastic Hawk, which is very challenging. Mm -hmm. We received extreme vitriol from the Horse Outside fans and they left. They stopped coming to gigs. They left. And then we left the country and said, let's have a crack at the UK from from fresh. And that worked out for us. And then we came back to Ireland in about 2013 with a kind of a new audience. And that's what I've been working with since. And I, I mean, never want those horse outside people back again. I mean, you've said a mouthful there. It's a lot of, that's a lot that's gone down. And mm-hmm. you've obviously lived through some pretty dark times there because... Look, I mean, no, like, okay, it was a, subje- it was a subjectively unpleasant experience but on the grand scale of things that shit the shit that people have to deal with it was nothing you know, know poor know poor blind boy poor blind boy doesn't like his audience like yeah, I no, mean come on I, I there's know pe- people who are homeless like it was just unpleasant it wasn't nice I'd prefer more out of my career yeah I know what you're doing there and I know that it's we in entertainment kind of can't complain or that's what you're told you can't do but yeah. relative to your situation you'd put your heart and soul into this thing, done the things that you thought you should do, made yeah. the creative choices you thought were correct. And it had ultimately kind of blown up in your face yeah. in that the the satire that you had presented had been taken on face value by the people you'd presented it to. Absolutely. And, and, and also, too, like, our early act was... Like, I, I grew up in Limerick in the mid-2000s at a time when Limerick had a, had a, dis, a very, very... It was very misrepresented in the media. Now, there was a gang war going on, you know. But if you mentioned Limerick to somebody in 2006, 2007, people immediately conjured up images of drive-by shootings and people getting shot and killed. And this was very frustrating for people living in Limerick because, yes, there was a gang war going on, but it was only affecting a very small amount of people who were in that circle. No different to what's happening in North Dublin now. But the media portrayed it as every single person in Limerick was Mm. living in fear. So I would walk into the shop in Limerick and the, you know, the the, the paper would say everyone in Limerick living in fear. And it's like, no, a small amount of people in Limerick are living in fear. And we got so annoyed we wanted to take that image of Limerick and blow it up times a hundred. When did that? When did that come about, though? Because in the beginning, it's it's prank, prank phone, phone calls. calls, yeah, and the first song is "Bag of Glue," 
And to me, Bagatlu doesn't scream, hey, look, world, we're not what you think we are. To me, it was much more of a kind of a fun send up. Whereas if you were in you to discover the joke, you really had to look very, very hard at it. To, yeah, to a, a, bag, it. a bag of glue was um, it was a satire of, of kind of to- toxic masculinity. It, it was, a, you know, it, bag of glue is one of those ones. It, you, you have to watch it with the video. Mm. The lyrics are, are quite misogynistic. And that was the point. If you see the video, it's a bunch of lads in a lads club and their way of. I don't know, exploring their own sexuality is to be misogynistic about women. And that's something that I witnessed a lot when I was in my early 20s. That's what certain lads would be. It's like they spoke horribly about women in a sexual fashion, but it was an expression of uh, almost fear and inner fear, you know? Yeah, I I completely lived it as well. There was like, if you think about growing up in Ireland in the 80s and 90s, you know, we knew nothing about girls and that was the way they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think about what's happening in terms of sexual misconduct. And I say to my wife that a lot of this is not actually teaching lads how to interact with women and how to respect them in that the way I understood you got the shift was that you got so shitfaced, eventually someone would kiss you or that, yeah, me you'd too. both be too drunk. I- Absolutely. To stop it from happening. Because the thing is, if you think back to growing up in Ireland, the first kind of, this is pre-social media, the first interaction you had with the opposite sex would have been a teenage disco, right? But at mm-hmm. teenage discos, it was boys on one side of the room, girls on the other side of the room, and a massive gulf in between, and ev- and people afraid to cross that divide of boys to girls, right? Yeah. Then, when you get older, 17, 18... What causes people to walk from one side of the room to the other is drink. Mm. And that was the crucial thing. Yeah, Everyone Dutch gets courage. shit-faced. Dutch courage. And I think what the drink does it, when you're a teenager is it, it protects you from rejection. That's the fear that you would go up to a girl and try and shift her and she wouldn't be interested. And that rejection, you don't have to feel shame around that if you're pissed because... You go, and you won't remember it either. Yeah, I was. Oh, I don't, don't even like her anyway. I was drunk. I would never have gone up to her if I was if I was sober. And mm. you're just protecting yourself from rejection. Was you know? there a was there a plan at that point? Like it doesn't seem like there was. That it was more. Let's do this. Everybody's saying this is funny. Let's just let's record a song. Was that? I oh mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That? Absolutely. I mean, I've been I've been uh, doing Rubber Bandit since I was about fourteen, fifteen at prank phone calls and. With the songs, I'd always been messing around in my bedroom, making music, you know. Mm. And then we kind of said, why, why not do a song for the crack? Just why not? For our own enjoyment. Literally for our own enjoyment. Put it up on MySpace and then Bag of Glue went viral. And Literally the first thing I can remember going viral because the phone calls were viral as well. But yeah, like, on Bebo it, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's tapes of them knocking about the place. I remember yeah. someone had a copy of the tape. Oh, Jesus, even before the internet, yeah, there was people yeah. burning them on CDs and tapes. That's nuts, Jesus, yeah. The video, obviously, is is a major, you know, milestone in the journey because you are now forced to visualise what the rubber bandits look like or did yes. you know that they wore bags on their heads at that point? For the first six years of our career, there was 
no visual representation of us whatsoever. We were merely voices on a prank phone call album. And when you started doing songs, if the song does well on MySpace, what happens is you start getting emails and the emails say, that song you're doing has gone viral. Do you want to do a gig? Mm. And for us, this is 2007. For us, it's like, yeah, we want to do a gig. They're offering us a couple of hundred quid, which when you're 21 <laughs> is amazing. Like, Yeah, we're rich. It's incredible, yeah. So we kind of said, right, shit, okay, we got to do this gig. What are we going to do? So what's the worst costume we could think of? What's the worst disguise? A fucking plastic bag. You know, uh, mm. it, it, half it sometimes as well, I think it came from, um, there's a wonderful quote from Johnny Rotten in a documentary made by Julian Copeland. I think it's Julian Copeland. It could be miles wrong now. Or it's Don Letts, I'm not sure. But Johnny Rotten anyway said, when punk became a thing in the late 70s, it was at the, it was during the rubbish worker strikes in the UK. So there was piles of rubbish on the streets mm-hmm. and punk in the UK came out of that. So Johnny Rotten said, if you're surrounded by rubbish, become the rubbish, wear the rubbish. And I do think that got into our heads at some point and, and came out as plastic bags. I think you, so, you can't really trace where an idea that like the plastic bag come from, you know. Sure, All we knew is we needed to hide right. our faces and do a gig. Yeah, so, the, so to some extent, and I do think that like it is kind of one of the genius elements of what you did and what you continue to do is the rejection of celebrity. And the idea that we're all in the market to be walking into Starbucks and people shouting norm. Um, yeah. Th- that, um, that notion that y- you're only as good as how well you are known. Yeah. The bags, obviously, either at the moment or in a post-rationalization, were a rejection of everything Ireland had become at that time, right? Absolutely. And... One important thing too is is the the rubber band that's formed in the year two thousand, okay? And it would have been when we got back into school in September and that summer was the first ever Big Brother on television, right? <laughs> yeah. Big Brother One was incredible. I loved it. It was amazing. It was so interesting. And the first ever Big Brother too on UK TV, it had quite a bit of integrity to it. Channel 4 didn't position it as reality TV, they positioned it as a serious psychological experiment. And every Wednesday night they'd have like uh, behavioural psychologists analysing mm-hmm. the behaviour of the contestants. It was incredible. But one thing that I got to see for the first time ever was it was won by a lad called Craig, okay? And Craig became the most famous man in the UK overnight, right? The the most famous man. And then I watched as that fame slowly and slowly disappeared over a matter of months. So this would have been August when Craig became famous. And by the time we'd gotten back to school, September, October, Craig was almost, he was almost a where are they now in the space Mm -hmm. of two months. And I remember thinking, Jesus, what's Craig going to do? Because he doesn't have a, a talent other than being on Big Brother. He's the most famous man in the UK and now he has to go to to Dunn's or Tesco being that famous and it's going to get worse and worse and worse and people are still going to be bothering him and he's not going to be earning money and he's just this famous person with no money behind it. Why would anybody want that existence? That sounds terrible. And I think that's where our desire for anonymity came from. 
Um, yeah, we certainly were all living through that at that time because uh, like the most recent Oasis documentary about this talked about that being a turning point in popular culture where, you know, this this was how fleeting fame could be. It was the Warhol idea that he had his 15 minutes and yeah. now he can buzz off. But you can't really buzz off. And when you when you do buzz off, it becomes quite shameful. I, I, I think if, you know, if, if you become famous and then fall from grace or fall out of favour and then you're just I don't know Craig probably works in in a call centre now or has a carpentry business and still meets people who recognise him but I think humans as as humans we have this desire inside us to we, we hate our when we pedestal someone when we put somebody on a pedestal we then begin to hate ourselves for putting another human on a pedestal above us and we project that hate as anger towards the person we pedestaled. And that mm. is why some celebrities get so much unnecessary hate despite their... There's celebrities out there that people absolutely hate and they've done, abs- they've done nothing wrong. Did you feel that when you described this hate that you were getting after Horse Outside's yeah, uh, Craig, Craig moment had passed? Did you feel it's, that hate and did you feel that it was yeah, completely yeah, yeah. unwarranted? It was, it was disgusting. It was like um, about six months after Horse Outside, if I tried to say anything on Facebook, because obviously now I was lucky. I I had that bag in my head, so I, I was still able to go into Starbucks. I was still able to walk around Limerick and no one knew who I was. That was wonderful. I don't know what would have happened to my mental health if I didn't have that bag to protect me. But six months after Horse Outside... If I'd have written anything on Facebook, tried to make a joke, 90% of the comments would have been, you're not funny anymore, go away. Your 15 minutes are over. Really? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it was horrible and it was intense. And it's like I said, Horse Outside was too popular too quickly and people pedestaled us and then they began to hate themselves for pedestaling these two lads. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do it is to, you know, throw... Tr- tr- it, it's, it's like a... It's the Western equivalent of a, a public stoning, you know, except just with words. And it's not very pleasant. So I wanted to walk away from it, but not walk away from being an artist. Just go, no, I know how I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to do some weird stuff. Was and you're going to walk that, away. Did that realisation take place when you went back to do the MA? Or am no, I the, the, the timeline the, all wrong there? No, the timeline's a bit wrong there. The... The moment was when I released a song called Spastic Hawk in 2011, which was a year later. And I was sitting down trying to make new music, okay, after Horse Outside, trying to make new music. And what you're doing, what what was so heartbreaking about it was, is I was going, I can't write the type of stuff that was being written before Horse Outside because that audience is gone now. So now I'm dealing with this new audience who also listened to Jedward. And I don't understand what it is they like. I cannot speak to these people. I'm not one of them. So I was trying to write songs that would please them. Very childish, silly, mm. Richie Cavanagh with a hip-hop beat songs. And one day I got so upset and angry that Spastic Hawk just came out of me. And it's one of my favourite songs because it's really challenging and it's weird and it's strange. And I said, right, that's what I need to do. That needs to go out there. And these fans need to find this so unrelatable that they walk away forever and it I worked o- I often think that people don't understand 
me or a, a writer when they talk about that came out of me. But I fully get what you mean. Yeah. You get yourself to a headspace or a place where you're actually not really in control of what's going down on the page. It's kind of, you know, it is the flow state that everybody... It's the flow state. It is the flow state, yeah. So spastic all comes out of... Flow, 100%. Flow and letting go and going what's inside and honesty. let's get it on the page. Pure honesty. Yeah. The, to quickly just dive off for a moment to the book, like, I've heard you say it, but the book is obviously a product of that too. It's a hundred percent flow, yeah. It's such a hard state to reach. It's so I find it extremely difficult, particularly in the context of jokes. Yeah, because you've the whole time got to kind of have your eye on the on the road. Well, uh, that's where I think would become a what I think become would become a struggle for you, Jarla, is that you're in the comedy circuit, you know. Mm. And that's really tough because you're out there going, I, I don't know, there could be there could be a bus full of Swedish people in the audience tonight. Yeah. Do you know, it's yeah. the truth. There could be a bus full of Swedish people. So it's difficult for you to do what's truly in your heart as a comedian because you must be at service to an audience that you can't really predict. Whereas at least with me, I've got, I, I, I've 17 years building up this audience that are kind of receptive to whatever it is I do. So that's good. Yeah, I get the impression that from what you're I'd saying. I'd be fucked. There, if I was doing comedy clubs, man, I'd be fucked. I wouldn't have a hope. If I was like, shit, there might be 10 Italians tonight. I, 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 I just wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, but I, I don't know, because what we're talking about here is whether the which art forms are more. Uh, can the flow state be applied to more readily? Like if you take a drummer, for example, they learn the drumming techniques so mm-hmm. that they don't actually have to think about drumming. Once they're up there, they're just flowing with mm-hmm. where the melody is. I get the impression that from what you're saying here, you have difficulty with stand up and comedy audiences specifically because you can't see how a flow state could be reached on stage. You you could actually know I, I have reached flow on stage, but only when I've got an audience that I'm very comfortable with. Mm. I, ha- I have reached that. But the thing is with... Uh, a joke, a joke must be clever. You can achieve a level of flow in a joke, but a joke also requires amazing structure and thought and cleverness. Hmm. And with a book, with a 6,000 word story, you can rant and you can flow and you've got all this space. Whereas with jokes, feed line, punchline, and getting to that punchline in the least amount of words possible. You've That's said, what a good joke is. You've said that modern modern comedy that the art has been taken out of out of comedy nowadays. What what do you mean by that? And why is it that you have to go right back to your childhood to think about comedy that you enjoyed? I'm trying to remember the context in which I said that sentence. Well, I think you were being asked about what comedy do you like? And you said uh, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer yeah. uh, are your real touchstone. And I, you can't really relate to what's happened. There's nothing in comedy right now that really... Not really, up. no. I think what it is, is is disappearing budgets. I think, and it's the same thing is happening in music. If you look at how Reeves and Mortimer was made, they would have been given quite a, a, a good bit of time and a good budget and a lot of freedom to do their thing. The other thing too that television comedy has to face is usually weekly TV comedy will respond to what's happening in the world, okay? Mm. 
But by the time, if you get a week to write that, by the time Friday comes around, the memes have been out there and they've done the job better. Yeah. Do you know? Or so, you're doing old jokes. Yeah. So you're doing old jokes and Tuesday. you'll never... Yeah. By the infinite monkeys and the infinite, infinite typewriters. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a, in a disparaging fashion, but it's just the environment has changed. So I, I, I don't know. I Like, I can't think of... There's a guy called Eric Andre, the Eric Andre show. Mm. That's the only comedy on TV that I will roll around the floor laughing at. But if I want to truly, truly laugh, I'm going back to Vic Reeves. I'm going back to Brass Eye, Alan Partridge. That's what does it for me. I don't know. I don't know. It's Maybe a, I need to be looking harder. Well, well, yeah, there is that. But there's there's also the thing of, do you really want to be in anybody else's headspace? Or do you want to properly explore your own? I always think about it whenever... There it is. That's just the beginning. To hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irishman Abroad episodes and shows, join us on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events... And for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible, and finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe... Through a donation, you can help them.